702. The Naked Scientist. 23 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock. And in the time remaining on this show, we get to connect with Dr. Chris Smith. That's the Naked Scientist all the way from Cambridge in the UK. And we are talking science this afternoon, taking your science curiosities, all your questions. Hello, Chris. Hello, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you. I was struck by a story about a woman who urinates alcohol. You know, that's how that's how it's written. Didn't really give it to the, the get to the scientific part, the really hard science stuff. Um, what a surprising story. Have you seen this one in The New Scientist? I, I did see this story and it, it made me immediately think, you know, it's really... Uh, puts a whole new spin on the phrase getting P1SSDD, doesn't it? Um, but the way in which this works, this lady is diabetic. So that means that she has very high levels of sugar in her bloodstream. Some of that sugar is spilling over into her urine because the kidney can't pull all the sugar out of the urine that's being made. So it ends up in her bladder. Because the concentration of oxygen in the bladder is very low and this woman has a yeast infection... The yeast, similar to the way that brewers' yeast will convert when there's no oxygen around, sugar into alcohol, this woman's urine becomes alcoholic because the yeast turns the sugar into alcohol in her bladder and she pees alcohol. The reason this came to light is that the woman also has a liver problem and she was trying to get onto a waiting list for a liver transplant because she had cirrhosis. And when the doctors tested her urine and found all this alcohol, they accused her of failing to be abstinent from alcohol, which is, of course, a big risk factor for liver cirrhosis. And she denied this and said, no, I I, I haven't been drinking. That's not why I, I got alcohol in my urine. And initially, they just accused her of lying. And then it came to light that this was actually happening. And so they've actually coined a new phrase, given this syndrome, a new name, which is automatic <laughs> urinary brewery syndrome. And basically, this woman has a brewery in her bladder and uh, her, her, her urine becomes really very alcoholic to the tune of 40 times more alcoholic than the urinary blood test. So or unbelievable. Alcohol threshold. Yes. So um, one, one obvious question is, well, does she become drunk? by hanging on to her, her bladder contents for a significant period of time? The answer is no, because uh, the alcohol does not move across the wall of the bladder because the the bladder has a special lining, which is called the urothelium, mm. which uh, the, those cells, they're called umbrella cells, and as the name suggests, they keep what's in the bladder separate from what's in the body to stop things that have got into the urine being reabsorbed into the body if you hang on to your wee for a while. Mm -hmm. And that includes alcohol. So the alcohol does not move out of her bladder into her bloodstream in an appreciable quantity. There was another case of something similar where somebody had a bowel problem and had a yeast overgrowth in their bowel and in their intestines they were turning sugars into alcohol and they were absorbing the alcohol. So basically they were brewing up their own beer in their intestines and they're getting drunk off the proceeds. This woman is not in that category, um, but she is the first documented case of someone with a brewery in their bladder. Oh, just so unusual. So unusual. Chris, thank you for that breakdown. Um, next, we go to Joe calling us from Kilani. Don't forget this afternoon, we're taking your calls on 011-883-0702. Your science question for the Naked Scientist right now. Joe, you're first up. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Azania. Uh, Dr. Smith, I just want to ask you a question about the nature of the Spanish flu. You know, we had viruses, H1N1, the 
uh, swine flu, the Asian flu, H2N2, the Hong Kong flu, H3N2. But the Spanish flu in 1914 resulted in the loss of 50 million people. So what is the identity of that virus and what has happened to that Spanish flu? Hmm. Hello, Joe. The answer is that and we don't know for sure where that flu came from in terms of what its, its origin was. But it was a new incursion of a new flu makeup into the human population in around 1917 to 1918, which, because it was sufficiently different to the circulating strains of flu at the time, it then became a pandemic strain and spread all over the world. It was H1N1 flu. But when a virus spreads through a population, it does two things. One, it removes from the population people who are susceptible, either because they're dead or they're better and immune. Also, the virus changes as it goes. Flu viruses change all the time. It's called genetic drift. And this is because of genetic changes or mutations that happen as the virus spreads through the population. But as it does so, it tends to adapt to make it a better spreader, more transmissible among its hosts and potentially less lethal for its hosts. So once it had gone through and caused a huge number of outbreaks and a huge number of cases and claimed a huge number of lives, anything upwards of 50 million lives were lost to Spanish flu, the virus then settled down into the background as a seasonal circulating strain of flu. And swine flu, which is also an H1N1 virus, has done exactly the same thing. It appeared as a new pandemic strain in 2009, spread around the world, and has now settled down into the background as the H1N1 flu that circulates, but doesn't claim lots of lives because most people have partial immunity to it now or full immunity to it because they've caught it recently. And, and as a result, it, it is not a lethal strain for the majority of people. And that's the nature of these new pandemic incursions into the human population. Joe, there's your answer. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for your question. Uh, let's go to our voice notes as we take your calls as well. We'll be moving between the two. Give us a call on 11 uh, Good afternoon, Aza. This is Monday from Kempton Park. Um, I've got a question for the naked scientist. There were efforts uh, to find out what exactly is happening within the, the Bermuda Triangle why ships and planes are disappearing and not to be found so i just wanted to know what happened to those efforts did they ever find out why ships and planes and and helicopters if they pass above that Bermuda triangle they disappear and never to be found thanks for that question um any thoughts on that chris Uh, well first of all The Bermuda Triangle is something of a myth. It all stemmed, we think, from a story many, many decades ago of an individual who took to the air uh, leading a wing of planes and had had alcohol to drink and went missing, disappeared off the radar, lost a follow-up. And this led to the the claims of, of planes disappearing and then more people improved the story and the telling. And so there became this kind of almost mythological culture around there's this patch of the ocean where bizarre things happen. Yep, it's it's an area prone to strange weather conditions and and obviously it's a a high traffic area. Lots of people and boats and planes do pass over that area. So not surprisingly, if you look, you'll find that sometimes they disappear. 
So it's not surprising if you've got an area where there's lots of boats and planes that you're going to see more disappearances in that area. It's the same as saying, well, do fire engines cause fires? No. Um, just because you see a lot of fire engines where there are fires, it doesn't mean they've caused the fire. It means they're there because of the fire. It's the same sort of coincidence going on. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are some explanations for what happens to boats, apart from you know rough sea conditions and so on and weather instabilities. There are also suggestions that in that patch of seafloor, there are lots of pockets of trapped gas and there are structures called methane clack rates where under very high pressure, natural gas can end up enclosed in a form of water called a, called a clathrate. And this is where water molecules bond together to form these molecular cages which, which contain gas molecules locked up inside the cage. And in fact, if you pull these things up to the surface, they look like an ice cube, but you can set fire to them because they're basically uh, a methane-rich ice cube. But these patches of seafloor can contain these big pockets of gas, which, if you have a small disturbance, can then convulsively burp up a whole bunch of methane gas. And if you have water saturated with gas, gas is a lot lighter than water is. And because the density of the water drops, it means it can support much less mass, it's less buoyant. So if you're in a boat sailing over the top of one of these areas and suddenly the water becomes totally saturated with gas, your boat suddenly doesn't have any buoyancy anymore and it drops like a stone into the water. And there is some some suggestion that this may explain some of the disappearances of shipping in this and other areas of the oceans. Right. Okay. So there's the explanation um, that because it continues to prevail, the, as, but as you say, it simply can be characterized as a myth. So let's take a break, Chris. And then when we come back, we're taking more of your calls. The Naked Scientist with us till the top of the hour. 702. The Naked Scientist. And we're back with Chris. It is 12 minutes to uh, three. Stan, let's come to you. You've got a question. You're out in four ways. Hi. Hi, good day, Azai, I'm the Naked Scientist. Uh, I've got a question. Mm-hmm. Science says that the closest living uh, um, relative of us is a chimp uh, who share about, you know, 95% plus of their DNA with us. Now, the question is, if that is true, would, um, you know, chimps necessarily get COVID-19 uh, virus? And then the second question is, um, with that uh, 95%, you know, identical DNA, can human beings get some of their organs donated, you know, from uh, chimps? Quite fascinating. Thank you for that question, Stan. Uh, Chris, wasn't there a vaccination of a chimp in a zoo uh, about two weeks ago or so? Uh, Stan, thank you. thanks for the question. And the answer is, first of all, on COVID, Chimpanzees are very, very similar to us in terms of the makeup of their body and the markers or chemical markers on the surfaces of their cells. So, yes, they are susceptible to coronavirus infection just like we are. And, in fact, you don't even have to be a chimpanzee for that to happen. Dogs and cats and ferrets and many other animals can also catch coronavirus. And the vaccines which are being tested uh, along the way of development, they're being tested on chimpanzees with coronavirus as, as well as other monkeys as well. So... Yes, um, you, you, well, they're, they're being tested on, on monkeys, for sure. Um, and, and I think, therefore, they could also go quite naturally into chimpanzees. There wouldn't be a problem. So, yes, chimps will definitely be able to catch coronavirus infection and will also suffer the side effects of it in the same way that uh, we do. In terms of organ transplantation, if you think about it, it's 
sufficiently difficult to transplant organs between humans, let alone trying to transplant organs between species. So at the moment, people aren't taking organs from wild animals and putting them into people. They have tried to do this in the past, though. This is called xenotransplantation. And people have, have tried to do, for instance, liver transplants and organ uh, kidney transplants from animals like baboons. The problem we run into when we try and do this is that because the chemical markers on the surfaces, the so-called antigens on the surfaces of those cells in those tissues are so different to the human equivalent, the immune system regards these tissues as highly hostile and will mount a response against them almost instantly when you transplant them into the body. And you end up in a position where you have to suppress the individual's immune system so hard to stop it doing that that they then die of another problem caused by a lack of immunity rather than the organ failure that they would have died from that necessitated the organ transplant. But people are actively exploring this as a possibility. Mm. For instance, by, by genetically adjusting the markers that are on the surfaces of various cells, and uh, one way they're doing that is in pigs, for example. They're manipulating the markers on pig cells and also removing from within the animals what are called endogenous retroviruses. There's a whole family of viruses that lurk inside the genome and they could potentially come out and start uh, growing in a person if you suppress their immune system. Were you to put those organs into a person and there would be a danger, therefore, you could spawn an outbreak of some animal virus that would then humanize and then start spreading among humans. So that's another reason not to do this without mm -hmm. thinking very carefully. But people are taking steps in that direction to render safe pig tissues, for example, because pigs are similar to us in terms of how their bodies work and how their organs work. And we already use some pig tissues to make certain replacement tissue and organs in our body. So um, watch this space. But in the near term, we're not doing that. And we're certainly not doing it with chimpanzees. Yes, right. Stan, there's your answer. Thank you for a brilliant question. Yeah, and it comes at a time where I saw that, um, what was it, orangutans and bonobos uh, at the San Diego Zoo had received a coronavirus vaccine. So uh, certainly for that first question. Let's go to Lucas next in St. Churin. Hi, Lucas. Hi, uh, I want to ask, because lanolin forms part of essential oils, yes. would or can sebum be used or made in essential oil? And if not, why? Can sebum be made an essential oil? Mm-hmm. Well, sebum is um, the sweaty stuff, the oily stuff that's shed by our skin. Yeah. So when you when you run your fingers over your nose after you've been sort of wandering around during the day and it feels a bit slippery, mm -hmm. that's the sebum. It's your skin pores, your glands. You have sebaceous glands in your skin that secrete that stuff onto the skin surface. And it's there to nourish the skin protect the skin and also to select all the kinds of microbes that live on your skin so it fends off the bad ones and helps the good ones that you want living on your skin to grow and flourish so it's essentially it is essential in your body because without that your skin would become very dry and you potentially would get the wrong sorts of microbes growing on you and also some of these um, sebum secretions are also smelly in such a way that they help you to attract the mate so therefore, we, we need these sorts of secretions because they also help us to find our, the love of our lives. Right. Okay, Lucas, thank you for that one. A little rather curious. Let's listen to this voice note, then we'll come back to the lines. Uh, hi, Azani. Arthur, I just wanted you to check with the naked scientists as to why does alcohol take the human beings differently 
Others cry, others scream, others become angry, others starting to sleep or fall asleep. Others become violent, others start speeding, others start driving zigzag in the road. Can you perhaps explain as to why alcohol got a different effect on human beings? I thank you. Bye. He has studied this. He has studied this, Chris. <laughs> the different effects like that he's, he's done witnessed. Quite a lot of personal research, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Um, the answer to this is: first of all, alcohol is a CNS depressant, a central nervous system depressant. When the alcohol that you drink gets into your brain, it activates or potentiates the action of a family of nerve transmitter chemicals called GABA. GABA is an inhibitory nerve transmitter. And it therefore switches on powerfully the inhibitory systems in your brain. But remember, those inhibitory systems might be there inhibiting the parts of your brain that make you behave a certain way. So therefore, what you see when you drink is disinhibition of other bits of your brain and suppression of the bits of your brain that you want working. And as a result, it will influence your behavior, decision-making changes, judgment changes, your coordination changes so every circuit in your brain is impacted one way or the other mm. and because everyone's an individual and everyone's different and everyone's brains are wired slightly differently when you put this stuff in that changes the balance of the neurochemicals in your brain it will disclose different behaviors in different people and that's why you see these different effects that's down to that okay one final one let's play this voice note as we wrap up Hello, Azania and Chris. Uh, Chris, I just want to know, what attracts a fly to a bad <laughs> smell and not a good smell? Coleman in <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we all know about this, don't we? Um, the way flies smell, they don't have noses, but they do have antennae. And if you catch a fly and look at it under a microscope or with a magnifying glass, you'll see the two antennae that stick out from its head, and they're furry. And inside those antennae are lots of nerves, and the nerves run up the antennae and come out onto the surface where they connect to these receptors. And receptors are chemical docking stations that can smell different molecules in the air. Mm. And as flies fly around, then the molecules they bump into in the air dock onto those receptors, and they send signals down the connected nerve into the fly's brain. And some of those receptors are programmed to tell the fly this is good. Others are programmed in the fly brain to say this is bad. And because the flies have two antennae, they're so sensitive, they can actually resolve a concentration difference across two antennae. Mm. So if you were to fly towards the source of the smell and you fly across that smell, one of your antennae is a bit closer to the smell than the other and they can detect that the one that's closer is seeing more of the smell than the one that's farther away, and so they know where the smell is coming from. So flies, including mosquitoes, will fly towards the source of the smell by flying backwards and forwards across the plume of the smell and resolving it across the antennae. They will also do the same thing if they're detecting smells they don't like. There are some things that flies know are bad, or they put them off or, or repel them. There are other smells that they know are good. Flies generally regard things as good if they are stinky, fetid, rotten, decomposing smells, because that, to a fly, smells like a delicious dinner. Mm -hmm. Because if something's already rotting away, A, the fly can get nourishment from it because it won't have to do much work to eat it, 
and two, it's a perfect place to lay your eggs because if you lay eggs on something like that, then the maggots that hatch out, your larvae, are going to be able to very quickly get a nice meal and grow into big, healthy, fat flies as well. Mm. So that's why that's why flies are programmed to find some things attractive and other things very unattractive. Things <laughs> that are unattractive, things that, that wouldn't be a good place to lay your eggs or eat your lunch. Yes, what a curious bunch we've had today, including this one. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks, Azania. See you soon. Thank you. All the things that you're curious about. Well, we do it every Monday after 2.30. That's The Naked Scientist.